Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you all have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 119, and we're going to spend our time this morning in verses 81 through 88. This is our final message in Psalm 119. I don't want to hear a cheer. I don't want to hear one person hoot or holler. I'm grieving. I'm grieving that it's the end of this. But, uh, but yes, Barney's, Barney's got plenty more psalms to get through, so he, he'll, be, he'll be perfectly fine. Okay, guys, Psalm 119, verses 81 through 88. These are the words of God. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, when will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me in the earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. So last week, uh, I hoped that we would, uh, we would see God uh, as God's people. We would see a picture of God as a good shepherd, a truly good shepherd. One of perfect love, one of perfect justice, uh, one who chastises us, uh, but also one who sighs with us in our pain. We looked at the 23rd Psalm, which is, of course, fitting based on what I just prayed, but we looked at the 23rd Psalm as a prime example of these truths, and we saw that while David uh, was in the valley of the shadow of death, he chose not to fear because God's character, because God's rod and his staff, they comforted him, they were with him. In today's section of Psalm 119, we're going to find David in such a place again Uh, A place that he would describe as soul-stopping, a place that he would describe as destructive, a time in which he felt helpless, desperately in need of comfort. This is truly a, a dark night of the soul, if you will. This is undoubtedly a place most of us have been. Show of hands, how many of you felt that you've gone through one of those valleys in your life, or many of them? Uh, maybe you've come to one of late. Right? Maybe you're walking through one now uh, late. I uh, was reminded this week of a, a quote by Jordan Peterson who said, you don't need to scratch very far beneath the surp- surface of most people's lives before you find something truly tragic. This is just absolutely true. Everybody has something there. Uh, but no matter what that is, no matter what the case is, these verses in Psalm 119 can provide us with a much-needed comfort. But I have to warn you uh, of the comfort that God provides. Uh, it's not the faux comfort that we see from the world. Okay? It's, not, it's not what the world promotes. Uh, it's not even what the modern church seems to give out. Nothing David said here will resemble self-help talk. Can't talk yourself into being a positive person. You will never remove um, the amount of negative people in your life to be able to get to a good place in this situation. 
because you would have to remove every human being on the face of this planet, right? Uh, this is not self-help talk, nor are these words, will these words leave us with some Instagram image of a man sitting serenely on a beach looking off into the sunset as he ponders his maker. Instead, what we will see is a very real valley. How many of you know that you're seeing real valleys in life? A very real valley. valley. We'll also see a genuine hope, though. That's really awesome. We'll see a belief in a God who is both loving and kind. That's encouraging. And we will see a faith that waits for God alone to move. It's a faith that trusts that God is going to redeem. God is going to bring justice or save us. So with that being said, I want to jump right into the verses, and then I will sum up this whole series at the end uh, by, uh, in my conclusion. I just got contact lenses this week, and this is really strange because I feel the urge to correct my glasses on my face, <laughs> and they're not there. And it's really weird. I'm going, so if you see that, I have not gone mad. Slightly. I've not gone totally mad. Okay, verse 81. My soul, <laughs> I don't want to hear it, Mark. Anyway, okay, my soul languishes for your salvation. This is verse 81. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. The term languish or uh, languishes means to stop or come to an end. And so, as I shared just a moment ago, uh, David has come to a soul-stopping end or a soul-stopping place in his life. Whatever the actual story was in that uh, moment, what we know for sure is that David had enemies, very real enemies. Those enemies were people who uh, disregarded God's ways. They didn't want anything to do with what God's law would say. They forged lies against God's anointed. There's a difference between telling a lie about somebody and forging one, working really hard to concoct this lie against somebody. And, and then these enemies were those uh, whose lies actually became a genuine form of persecution to David. I think we've all related to times like that where somebody's lie feels like we're being persecuted. It feels like we're being oppressed or hurt. And that's a very uh, true reality in life. David had lost credibility in his kingship. Uh, and as we learned last week, he fervently desired that God would restore that legitimacy or his legitimacy. Yet in all of this, David waited for God to move. He was one who knew that God was the, the Savior. He was the one who would do it. David didn't execute judgment on his own, uh, although as king he very well could have. Instead, David demonstrated his belief that vengeance belongs to God alone. How many of you know that that's true? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Uh, knowing that vengeance belongs to God is why David's soul stopped for salvation. David's soul, in that verse, does not stop because of his enemy. It stops for God's salvation. It was his desire for God's deliverance, not his enemy to be vanquished or destroyed. Although that is a part of justice, it was waiting for the Lord that brought him to an end. Uh, it's important to highlight that David didn't just wait for God the way we sometimes wait for God, and that is we just go about our business and we hope that God will make everything right in our life. David actively waited for the Lord. 
This is what we are to do in our waiting, and it's a type of waiting that uh, includes studying God's Word, sitting at His feet. This type of waiting is not sitting down with a pen and paper to write down all the ways that you hope those who have hurt you in the past might suffer to your satisfaction. This is not what you should be meditating on, trust me. The perfect murder scheme is not going to work here, okay? Uh, right? This is, this is not what we do. It also isn't keeping such a record of wrong uh, that you have nothing but pain and misery to meditate on. This seems to be what people do. We have a, a laundry list of all of our hurts, and what we do every day is we just hold on to them, and we think about them, and we contemplate them, and we get depressed about them, Right? These are, these are more ways to add anxiety to your life, as Mark was mentioning before. Here's a helpful idea, though, that counters the teaching of today's pseudo-Christianity. This type of waiting also doesn't mean trying to find our hope in positive thinking. You will never find a passage in David's writings where he just ignores his plight, ignores his pain, and just tries to pretend like all things are good. It's just not the way he does it. David was real with his pain, but he was also just as real in his belief that God's word was life and that God's word was revival to his soul. It's good to see you, Trent. Good to see you. I sure love your smile, sir. I mentioned above that, uh, that the object of David's affection here was salvation. I've shared this many times in the past. Uh, this term salvation means a wide variety of things. In this instance, salvation is clearly about justice. Uh, and while it is possible that David was waiting for Israel's promised Messiah, the vital thing to remember is that salvation here had a very real outplay inside of David's life. Okay, so it worked out, and David went on to the grave, and God can be credited for this beautiful salvation that occurred here. Right the wrong of David's life was God's aim, and that's what David was pr praying for. We have to interpret the Bible correctly, though, church, and you need to listen to me on this. We have to interpret the Bible correctly. We have allowed, uh, we have allowed words to mean uh, what we think they mean in just about any context we put them in, and that's not a good way to interpret the Scripture. If we take every instance of the word salvation throughout the scripture and we impose the Christian notion of eternal salvation, of what Jesus did on the cross, we will generate deep theological problems. We will have many theological problems, such as doctrines of salvation that just simply contradict the New Testament. So when you're reading the text of scripture, you need to understand that a word means something within its context. Are there things called census planure? Are there things that have a fuller meaning? Yes, but not all things have a fuller meaning. And what do I mean by that? I mean to say that what the New Testament has revealed as the fuller meanings of things from the Old Testament are those things in the Old Testament which had a fuller meaning. But you don't get to read a passage from the Old Testament and say, I've got a fuller meaning for this. Because you'll come up with some sort of Mormonism, <laughs> okay? So it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You have to allow the Scripture itself to interpret the Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples of salvation uh, in the text. Psalm 51 verse 12 says, Restore to me the, the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. This was something David already had. He needed it restored. Isn't that an amazing idea? So salvation in this sense was something David had already known and had already experienced. 
And he said, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Something about that salvation was supposed to sustain David. Uh, in Isaiah 46, 13, I bring near my righteousness. This is God speaking to Israel. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. This was return from captivity. This was a new justice for them so that they might be set right, so that God's plan for the future, his king and his Messiah, would be able to come. Salvation in this context means something very different. Uh, lastly, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 36, You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your help makes me great. You have given me the shield of your salvation. It's amazing. God's protection is for his people. And in this context, that is what salvation is all about. So reading them in the right context, reading the word for what it means where you see it, is going to change uh, the meaning, but it is important that you do so. Otherwise, you will come up with strange ideas. Okay, so let's, we've got the justice, we've got the salvation of God from verse 81. Let's move to verse 82. My eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, when will you comfort me? How many of you have asked that of God? When will you comfort me, Lord? How many of you have asked it frequently in your life? I've asked this frequently in my life. When will you comfort me, Lord? There's nothing wrong with this question. God is not offended by it. There are two very important parts of this verse. The first is the degree to which David waited on God's word. And the second is David's honesty, again, in asking for God's comfort. So let's look at the degree to which David waits. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, to read the word until the eyes can no longer see is only a small thing compared with watching for the fulfillment of the promise, God's salvation, God's justice, King Jesus, the return of our King, whatever it might be, it is a small thing compared with watching for the fulfillment of the promise until the inner eyes of expectancy begin to grow dim with hope delayed. Now, it's really important to check this out, to realize this, that David, Solomon, uh, Charles Spurgeon, obviously, we will experience times where the inner eyes of our soul grow dim in waiting. We're longing for God to do something, and we feel like he's just not doing it, right? This is something that happens constantly in our lives. It is not that he has abandoned us, okay? So I'm going to make sure that that is a comfort to you in just a second. But Proverbs 13, 12 was written for a reason, right? Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick homesickness for God, being away from him, should create in us a longing, right? That, that should be natural. But what we should do in light of that longing is that we should seek him harder, seek him faster, seek him longer, and let our eyes grow dim, let our inner eyes grow dim, whatever it is, but we need to look for him because the second half of Proverbs is super powerful. Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. When God answers his promises, we come alive. This is, this is amazing to me. And it's happened so many times in my life that I look forward to those times. I, I desperately uh, try to avoid the former times, but I can't help that. God is going to do what God is going to do. David, David wasn't just reading his Bible until he fell asleep, though. 
Listen to what longing means. Although that would be better alternative than falling asleep to the television. Uh, rather, what David was saying is that his longing for the fulfilled promise of God, for the justice promised to God's anointed, it so consumed him that the inner eyes of David were actually failing in their waiting. He was growing he was growing desperate. He was growing hungry. This is what led to his, second, his question. When will you comfort me, Lord? When will you do this? He was straining to see hope in the midst of his pain. He knew that there was hope. Don't forget this, church. He knew that there was hope. He knew where to find that hope. He just simply had a struggle seeing it clearly or seeing the timing of God. How many of you struggle with that, right? How about yesterday, Lord? <laughs> That's my favorite timing for God. How about yesterday? Uh, Psalm 69.3, I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. David knew this position many times in his life. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 11, uh, Jeremiah knew this place too. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city. I've always been enamored by this picture of eyes failing because of tears. What does this mean? It means that the weeping that you are doing uh, for, in your longing for the promises of God are so much so that you can't even see. How many of you have cried to that level where you can't even see? You wish your eyes had windshield wipers, right? And, and so you're, you're longing for this and you just can't see. This is the level of his grief. This is the level to which he longs. I'm, I'm pointing this out because this is so vastly different than our view of waiting on the Lord. We wait on the Lord for a very short period of time. I'll get into this in just a second. We wait for such a short period of time. But David's longing was something that, I know, this is going to be hard to hear. It disrupted his schedule. (laughs) David probably had to cancel dinner plans sometimes because he longed for the presence of God. We're so consumed with our lives that we will stop at nothing and God must fit within our schedule. And when God doesn't do that, we try to reschedule with him on Google or something. But he's not working that way, church. He's not working that way. He will allow you to long for him in such desperation that you begin to, or he will, he will not enact justice on your behalf for such, in such a way so that you will long for him. This is how God works. He is not, he's not being mean or vindictive. He is not being hard on you. He is training you that he alone offers life and that nothing else that you run to will give you peace. If God doesn't allow you to feel that, what will happen is that you will pacify all your pain. You'll do it with drugs. You'll do it with alcohol. You'll do it with uh, stuff. Trust me, it's going to happen. But God will say, okay, until you want me, until you want me that deeply, I'll step back and let your longing grow. Okay? Both David and Jeremiah were waiting for God to the point of troubled spirits, to the point of tears, to the point of stopping souls. I found that many are willing, again, to wait for God for a good 30 minutes, but, but then they just take it into their own hands, right? Uh, what this reveals actually is impatience or a lack of trust in the Lord. 
Nathan Daniels shared with us yesterday at our men's uh, breakfast, and I encourage you to be a part of those. We're going to have another one on November the 7th. That's a Saturday. It's at 10 a.m. All men are welcome to this, but Nathan Daniels shared with us about a lesson that he's learning, about a lesson in contentment. And uh, what happens so often in our uh, lives, in our learning contentment, um, is that we, we trust God for salvation, right? We trust God for things that we can't control anyway. God's going to save us or God's not going to save us, okay? And thank the Lord he said he would save us if we will believe, okay? This is beautiful truth. God's going to save us. So we, we trust God for salvation. The problem is we take back everything else in life. We try to control it ourselves. So we're like, Lord, I trust you for salvation, but I don't trust you with my work. Lord, I trust you for salvation, but I don't trust you with my life, right? How many of you know that this is true of you too? right? I say this a lot. If you're not showing your hands right now, it's probably because you're lying to me, okay? So, but, but the, the reality is that we trust God for our salvation, and then all of a sudden, we fret over the bills. We panic over so many things. Uh, David, in his, David, in his longing after God, he always ran back to God because he was trusting God. His waiting was in the Lord, in the word of the Lord. Our waiting, again, is 30 minutes. God doesn't meet the time frame. I'm going out on the town. I'm going to go back to my life. I'm going to go and try to control it all. This is not faith, church. This is using God as a genie in a lamp, and he is not such a thing. Okay? So we need to really understand this better. Now, one of our uh, troubles, one of our struggles is that we view God as slow, and therefore he's not going to answer but 2 Peter 3, 9 gives us an answer to this. The Lord is not slow about his promise. Some of you are like, Lord, where are you at? Well, the Bible answers. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. You know who the some are in that? Me. <laughs> I'm part of that some. I count him as slow a lot. But he is patient towards you. Remember, this is talking to a collective group of people. Peter is writing to a y'all here, right? And he says, but he is patient toward y'all, wanting, uh, wishing that uh, not anyone should perish. So he's patient with all of you because he knows that there are people who are perishing apart from him. And so he wants them to come to trust him. Uh, God is, again, not slow. David knew what we seem to not understand. God is not slow. He is always active. He is worth waiting on, church. God is. Does this mean that we will not lose heart from time to time and feel alone? No, we will. But these dark nights of the soul are opportunities for training. They're opportunities to grow in our faith. Just as God allowed the children of Israel to go hungry to teach them that they needed him, there's a absolute black and white example of what I'm talking about, Deuteronomy chapter 8, 2 and 5, 2 through 5, he will allow our justice in this life to be delayed to train us in faith. He allowed Paul's justice of persecution to be delayed and told him, my grace is sufficient for you, but I don't like that. Well, nobody likes that. But God is still training you and teaching you. How far will God go in that training? Even to the point that we ask what David asked in the second part of the verse. When will you comfort me? God is not intimidated by those questions, church. When will you comfort me? 
Does this seem brash to us? Maybe if we read it wrong, but I assure you what David is expressing here is the boldness of a child who actually believed their father's promises. I believe you'll come through, so when will you? I believe in you, Lord. David was candid with God, and we should be too. This type of cry is not questioning God as in putting him on trial. This is a seeking him honestly. This is a seeking him boldly. This is a seeking him with reverence. This is, this is looking for our Father to comfort us. Isn't that amazing? This is what we're all about. Okay, verse 83. Let's keep moving. Uh, Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. This verse is an example of both honesty and reverence. Let's look first at the wineskin and smoke concept. The effects of smoke on a wineskin are actually destructive. They were, and they are, right? They're destructive to a wineskin. It actually renders them useless. It'll make them dried out. It'll make them brittle, all of those things, and they'll leak. Uh, David was declaring that he had become like a blackened wineskin, okay? Uh, I feel like that generally uh, by the time the weekend ends. So what's the deal with that? (laughs) Anyway, uh, he's shriveled up in the smoke of persecution. That's the image that I want you to have. He shriveled up in the smoke of persecution. In other words, he felt useless. Job felt this way too. Many other writers in in the scriptures felt this way. However, in their despair... For example, Job and David, uh, both Job and David experienced a but God moment. In David's case, God's promises were contained within his statutes. And uh, David was confident that not a single word would return void. Not a single word. I don't know that we have that confidence uh, in God or in his word. Even if he didn't know God's timing, he knew that God would come through. Next, we see the honesty and humility of David, which are both truly amazing to me. David had no issue declaring how hard his life was at times. (laughs) I love this. He sounds like a complainer. He really does. Uh, I'm going to have Barney keep teaching on the Psalms as much as he can and make sure that he makes it sound like David would sound, complaining and whining. So you just got to catch that, Barney. Do that when you're teaching. But David has no issue. No issue saying life is horrible. There's no issue with that at all. Uh, he, he even laments. He complains. He doesn't lie to others. David doesn't lie to himself. And he surely doesn't lie to God. This is a rough time here. When things were hard, David let everyone know it. Why? Number one, because David knew God is not put off by those truths. So let me talk to you for a second. God is not put off by your uh, candid nature of talking to him. God is, God is not, no matter what uh, people that are stuffy in the church might think, uh, God is not put off by you saying, Lord, uh, my life sucks right now. I'm tired. I'm hurt. I need you to fix it. He's not put off by that. Now, if you have no faith in him, if you're not trusting in him, we're dealing with a different matter. But he is not offended by a candid approach to him. So the first thing that we learn from David's words is that David knew that it didn't put God off. The second thing, again, was that uh, this kind of transparency actually trains future generations. How in the world are our children going to know how to navigate adversity if they don't see it modeled for them? When you face hard times, when you face hard times and you don't run to King Jesus, guess what your children are going to do when they face hard times? Not run to King Jesus. When you face hard times and you run to the bottle, 
What do you think your children are going to do? Listen, you are discipling your children whether you know the curriculum or not. You're discipling them. If you disciple them to totally vegetate on life by turning the TV on, you are discipling your children. If you teach your children to do every manner of evil thing under the sun, uh, or if you do that, you are teaching them to do exactly the same. So how are our children going to know how to navigate negative things if we don't model it for them? How will young Christians know what patient endurance looks like if they don't see others patiently enduring? Church, again, this is back to fast food Christianity, uh, back, to, back to the way we've, we've allowed the culture to influence the church. If God doesn't answer within five seconds, we move on. And then our kids think, well, if God's not going to answer in five seconds, I guess i got to move on. That's not true. Jesus himself taught people to persistently pray, to ask for justice, and to tarry with him, to sit with him, to weep with him, to the point where you're Tears are making your eyes fail. We just look at it and go, God, I gave you five minutes on the way to work. I don't know what your problem is. You should know. And then we misquote scripture. God knows what we have need of before we ask. He does. Your mom and dad probably know exactly who you are deeply because they raised you. But they want to see you when you come to the house. (laughs) They want to sit with you and talk to you. They don't just want a passing glance. They don't want you on your cell phone. God doesn't want you on your cell phone either, right? He wants you with him. He wants you to spend time with him. Uh, Our children need that as well. How would they know what persistent prayer is unless it's modeled for them? How would any of us learn that God is not intimidated by harsh words or complaining or carrying on uh, if David didn't voice his? We would we would continue to believe that God needs positive talk or something, which is crazy. Uh, We may find ourselves withered and feeling as useless as a blackened wineskin at times, but in those times, we should mimic David and fall back on God's statutes. When David did this, he became more than a man in pain. He became our teacher. He became our disciple maker. What a powerful idea. As we learned last week, a faithful life always serves as an example to those who fear God. When we follow David's example, not only do we learn more about God's character, uh, more about his love, more about his help, uh, but we also begin to teach others through our example. God didn't punish David for being brutally honest about his despair. So why do we try to hide our discouragement and despair behind Christian platitudes, behind fake smiles, behind playing church? I don't understand it. God sees what's on the inside. He knows it's just a mask that we're wearing. But what we need to understand is that that mask does no one any good, especially not ourselves. People don't know who you really are because you're, you're faking it. Being real, being transparent, not only frees us to receive God's comfort, but it also teaches others to do the same. I want my kids to be real with me. I want them to be real with their Heavenly Father. It's amazing when we sit at the table and we talk about our Lord, we talk about our King, that all of a sudden out of nowhere, my youngest, Becca, will just look at me and she'll say, Daddy, I love Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Why would she know that? Why would she think to say that? The skeptical world would say, because you're indoctrinating your children. To the skeptical world, I'd say, so are you. 
But what I am doing in my life is I'm modeling that I love my king every day, and it's taking its effect on my kids, right? Train up your children in the way they should go. In the end, they won't depart. Even at an early age, they'll, de- they'll declare that they love uh, our king. Challenging circumstances, unfulfilled desires, hurt, and heartbreak are a reality of life. They're coming, church. They're coming. No promise in Scripture said you'd get out of it. When we encounter them, we may be like David as we bring them before God. Trust him, trusting God to save, to fulfill, and to deliver. This is what will bring us through. We've got to run and take shelter in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 84. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? (laughs) I love it. There are a couple of ways that we could read this. Catherine Adele, please sit down. There are many ways that we could interpret this, right? David's question. I'm I'm reaching for my glasses again, sorry. Number one, David could literally be asking, how long do I have to live and when will you judge these wrongdoers? Like, give me a time frame. I want to know. March something? I want to be with you. Number two, he could be asking, how many are my days and when is justice coming? And what I mean by that is, will I get to see justice unfold? Will I be able to witness my own vindication? That's another way that we could read those words. The third way is, how long will this sanctification process last before I break? (laughs) How many of you felt that? I'm breaking, Lord, and I just need to know how much longer I've got. All three of those are valid interpretations of how David is asking the question. Charles Spurgeon uh, quotes, uh, suggests that David would would say something like this. Uh, this is Charles Spurgeon speaking for David. Quote, I cannot hope to live long in such a condition. You must come quickly to rescue me or I will die. Will my short life be consumed in such crushing sorrows? The brevity of life is a good argument against the length of any affliction, Lord. Since I am to live a short time, be pleased to shorten my sorrow also. That sounds like a wonderful prayer to me, okay? And that sounds like what David is doing. I think Spurgeon, what he did so masterfully was he incorporated all three of those views of how to interpret that one passage. In Spurgeon's view, David's despair was marked by honesty and by running to God for help. That's what we should do in our despair, in our, in our heavy hearts. This sounds similar to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. This will be on the screen for you. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. And God allows this struggle in their life because they learn to trust him. God, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, so it's all these tenses of his deliverance, you also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many Let's move on to the next uh, block of verses so that we can kind of put all of this stuff together, okay? And you'll see where I went from that despair of life itself. Verses 85 through 87, here's what God's word says again. The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All 
your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. And I love what David says here. This is not a question, church. Look at what he says. Help me. That's what he says to God. He doesn't say, help me. Kind of, maybe. He's, he's exclaiming something to God. Help me. I felt this way many times in my life. They almost destroyed me in the earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. These verses sound a lot like the passages that we've read over the past couple of weeks. As a matter of fact, this seems to be common phrasing for David. We can look at Psalm 35.7 as another example of this. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. He's always being oppressed. He's always going through trial, right? He's always facing these enemies. Uh, But God, but God, but God. Always. Apart from the basic reality of David's circumstances, these types of verses are also colored with prophetic tones. So check out the prophetic nature of these these verses. This persecution was the very thing done to our king uh, and savior, both in his life and on the cross. David's trust in times uh, like this were displayed by his faithful turning to God's word. Jesus, the Word made flesh, so David went to the Word of God. Jesus, who is the Word of God made flesh, displayed his trust in the Father by being the Word, by living out what God had sent him to do. And he was obedient to the Father completely, even to the point of death. We can also see how uh, this is prophetic for us as well, because Jesus told us in John 16, 32 and 33, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world, say this with me, church, you have tribulation. Now say that one more time. In the world, you have tribulation. You have it. Don't try to get out of it. But take courage. That's the best biblical advice. The pseudo-biblical advice that says God loves you so much he's going to prevent all things from entering your life is nonsense. You will face pain, persecution, sickness, loss. You will not like life at times, but God. Isn't that amazing? That is hope to me. Telling me a fairy tale and watching God fall short of it every day irritates me. What I want is to know what the Word of God says and to live by it. He will comfort me in this time. He may not remove it, but he loves me enough to keep that staff and that rod right by me at all times. That makes my heart jump up and down. I love it. David's solace was found in God's precepts and his laws, in the promise that God would comfort. Jesus' comfort was in the Father. Our peace is found in all of the above. So, so good. The Word of God, the Word made flesh, and our Heavenly Father, uh, in whom we can abide through Christ. To me, me, this is a greater peace to know that God, uh, although forewarning us of trial and persecution, is showing us that in Christ we will overcome. We will overcome. Another problem that we have here is that we think God is just too slow for us. But he's overcoming. Don't worry about it. This overcoming comes through obedience. It comes through submission to our king. 
We see this every, uh, every time we read uh, the scriptures. But one of the most important ways to see this is actually in the Hebrew letter that starts off this eight-bar section of the psalm. The Hebrew letter that leads this one off is the letter Kaf, okay? And it, and it was in pip, pictograph form, which is, of course, the ancient Hebrew uh, language. Uh, it was the palm of a hand, Okay, that was what cough was represented by. So that was the letter, the palm of a hand. The meanings of this letter are to bend or to curve. Think about the palm of your hand. They bend or they curve. Um, but here's what's really fascinating. Uh, it also meant to tame or to subdue. Why? Because it meant to bend. To bend to another's will. Our Lord, our King, uh, bears on his hands, the proof of that submission. That's what the cross is all about, right? His hands were bent because of nails. They were broken because of nails so that he uh, would save us and so that he could be obedient to uh, his father. He was perfectly submitted to him. And we should say, along with Paul, that we will rejoice in our sufferings, that we will be glad to be bent according to his will, so that we, as Paul says, might fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What does that mean? It actually means that Christ suffered the afflictions for our salvation, and there are many afflictions for our belief in this life, and there are many other afflictions for our sanctification. We will endure them all the days of our life. So we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Okay, verse 88. This is the final verse. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth at every turn within this series in Psalm 119. We've seen a high view of God's word, right? Uh, God's word is synonymous with his precepts, statutes, laws, commands, promises, testimonies, and on and on. Every time in the psalm, we've seen a different iteration of that. We've seen that they bring joy and they bring peace. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little call and response. How many of you know by a shout of amen, <laughs> or how many of you agree by an amen that God's word brings joy and peace? How many of you know by a shout of amen that God's word uh, contains truth and conviction? Amen. Yes, it brings truth and conviction too. How many of you know that God's word brings chastisement and comfort? Amen. amen. How many of you know that God's word brings revival and endurance? The amens are getting less and less, but I'll, I'll work that out, okay? But for those of you who feel tired, revival and endurance are also promised in God's word. Psalm 119 is an absolute go-to when you're facing trials. I know we love to go to Psalm 23. Most people don't even know what Psalm 23 is about. But in this situation, uh, in your situation, I encourage you to go to Psalm 119. Because what you'll find is something similar in David's word. And what you'll always find is the instruction, run back to my word. Run back to the word of the Lord. Run back to the statutes of God. That's what we need to do. So this is how I want to conclude this message. It's, uh, it's, it's fitting because he's, uh, he's one of the, the greatest preachers that the world has ever known. They... I think the reason why they called Charles Spurgeon, correct me if I'm wrong if you know this story, the reason why they called him the Prince of Preachers was either because they believed David or they believed Paul or they believed Jesus to be the King of Preachers. 
not sure, but he was the prince of preachers. I'm glad to be the pauper of preachers, okay? So I'll just quote Charles Spurgeon, and we'll be good. Now listen to what he says about verse 88. Here's what it said. Revive me according to your loving kindness. That was the cry of David. Revive me according to your loving kindness. Charles Spurgeon. This is a most wise, most blessed prayer. If we are revived in our own personal piety, we will be out of reach of our assailants. Uh, Our best protection from tempters and persecutors is more life. Where do we find that life? Revival in God's word. Loving kindness itself cannot do any greater service for us than to cause us to have life more abundantly. If you have life more abundantly, you're good, church. Trust me. When we are quickened, Charles Spurgeon, when we are quickened, we are able to bear affliction, to confound those of the world who think that they are wise, and to conquer sin. We look to the loving kindness of God as the source of spiritual revival, and we entreat the Lord to quicken us, not according to what we deserve, hallelujah, not according to what we deserve, but out of the boundless energy of his grace. What a blessed word is the mercy of God. See, what's amazing, church, is that when we really understand what is happening in Psalm 119, we, when we really understand what's happening, which is to point us to God's word, which brings us life, we now have a go-to in trial. We now have a go-to when things are hard. We now have a lifeline of mercy, and I mean that literally, a lifeline of mercy, because mercy and loving kindness bring life. Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick, but the promise fulfilled is life. Isn't that amazing? So I've told you guys for years that you should read your Bibles more. I've told you guys for years that you should dedicate time. Don't just give God a little passing glance every day that you should give him time. But I'm not telling you that so that you'll check a religious box so that you can get to heaven. That's not why I'm telling you that. I'm telling you that because genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, I want you to live. Everybody in this life is looking for life, and they're looking for it outside of the only source that gives it. And then all I get is phone calls complaining. That was meant to be a joke, but I want, it, I want that to change because you see the real source. It's not going to be in pop psychology. There's nothing inherently wrong with pop psychology, right? There's some great things. God has truth that he uh, has communicated in all kinds of facets of life. But my point is, it'll line up with the word of God, and that word of God is where we need to go first. We need to run to it. We need to abide. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.